International Code Council Region 1 and Region 1 Radio Show. My name is Tim Spears. I'm the host of Region 1 Radio. Region 1 was established in 2014 and we're made up of three states, California, Nevada, and Hawaii. That also includes many ICC chapters. We are dedicated to excellence in education and engagement to promote a safer environment by bringing individuals together. Our podcast aims to provide valuable information and insights to professionals in the building and fire safety industry. We cover a wide range of topics, such as industry updates, best practices, and we interview experts in the field. We also aim to engage our listeners by discussing many relevant topics. Whether you're a code official, a building inspector, architect, engineer, or someone that's interested in the building and fire safety industry, our podcast is for you. We believe by bringing individuals together to share knowledge and resources, we promote a building safety environment and contribute to the betterment of our communities. So if you want to stay informed and up to date on the latest developments in the building safety industry, be sure to tune in to ICC Region 1 Radio. Today we're joined by Dr. Aguirre from Drexel University, a renowned figure in the realm of structural engineering with significant contributions to understanding structural failures, notably the tragic Surfside condo collapse. Dr. Aguirre has been a sought-after voice in media outlets. In this conversation, we'll journey through his academic and professional path, explore his passion for structural engineering, and understand the critical role of structural failure analysis from both a code official and an engineer's perspective. Stay tuned for an enlightening discussion that bridges the gap between theory and real-world applications. Hi, Professor uh, Dr. Aguirre. I'm, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correct. Yeah, um, you're with, very close. Yeah. <laughs> I've been practicing like for the last three days to, to try to figure, you know, make sure I get it right each time. Yes. Um, but you're with Drexel University, um, have done a lot of work in, re in regards to uh, structural failures. Um, and uh, you did a lot of work with the Surfside condo collapse. And I'm sure a lot of people that are listening to this podcast are going to be able to identify you and, um, and some of the different periodicals and videos that you've been. Um, and even like I, I, last night I was watching uh, the, the Smithsonian episode yeah. that talked about the Surfside condo collapse and the different, you know, the 10 different uh, steps or 10 different things that went in to potentially cause that failure. So, but welcome, welcome to ICC Region 1 Radio. My pleasure to be here. Yeah. Well, um, like I said, you know, I definitely want to talk about um, structural failure analysis and maybe more at a code official level and less at a structural engineer level. I'm sure that there are some structural engineers that listen. Um, but uh, for myself, I'm a fire code official. So yeah. the idea of structure is more of like, how do we make sure to secure the structure for us to go in and do what we need to do later? Like, um, you know, the fire to fire, do a fire investigation and, and those types of things. But we also are in buildings pretty frequently and, and uh, see a lot of different failures, at yeah. least as it relates back to that so welcome um can you share a little bit about your background what really led you into uh you know structural engineering and and really the 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 kind of the specialty of structural failure analysis so um i went into civil engineering because i had uncles that were civil engineers uh, uh who did who seemed to be doing very well so <laughs> i mean like many students i didn't you know i kind of had an idea what civil engineers did i right. knew that you know, they did, you know, they worked on structures, roads, and, and civil infrastructure, but I really didn't know uh, specifically what exactly they did, but I knew my uncles were doing well. Okay. So I decided to go in civil engineering, and I got my bachelor's degree uh, in civil engineering from the University of Lagos, and then uh, proceeded to MIT and got my master's degree uh, in civil engineering, but with a focus uh, in structures. Okay. And, and then from there, I went to the University of Alberta uh, in Edmonton uh, to get my PhD. Okay. Then after getting my PhD, I was really, uh, you know, green as grass, no yeah. experience. Uh, and so my advisor, who I went to work with in Alberta, he, he was a, a very famous guy. He was, a, he was the um, president, once the president of the American Concrete Institute. Okay. Uh, Jim McGregor, he's late now. And he advised me that I should go work in the industry. 
it would be good for me to get mm. some experience. Right. So I went and got some experience in a consulting structural engineering firm in Toronto and uh, worked there for about eight years. And, and then uh, from there, I, I proceeded to uh, to academia uh, at the mm -hmm. Rochester Institute of Technology, became a professor there. And then uh, after 13 years there, I moved to um, uh, Drexel University uh, as a professor as well. And so uh, I've been here since then, uh, since 2009. Okay. And, uh, you know, why structural design uh, or structures? Yeah. Uh, because, you know, I just, you know, the, you can see the structures that you design. Mm -hmm. You can take your uh, friends and family uh, to see those structures. And you can see them for yourself, bridges, yep. uh, you know, high rises. And by the way, I mean, what skyline is there without structural engineers? That's true. And so to me, um, I felt that structural engineers, I'm sure other engineers contribute to the, you know, building the fabric of society and, right. and, and building civilization. But I see that structural engineers are real at the forefront of building that fabric of society. Places where people have fun, yeah. uh, places where people learn. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, in building. Um, and, and so that's what got me interested. I wanted to go into structures. And it was also more mathematical. Oh, you know, it had physics, yeah. and so I was excited about doing structures, you know, uh, exercises. So that's how I got into structures. As far as um, structural failure analysis goes, mm -hmm. um, back uh, in in the early '90s, when I was designing, uh, uh, working on a project in you know in Toronto, I was designing a uh, a walkway, a very long walkway. It was a scientist, we called it a scientist walkway. It was where the scientists will go on that long walk and, you know, to, you know, sort of like, generate ideas. Yeah, creativity, but, like, right? <laughs> yeah, but the thing was hung, I was hanging from uh, the structure above. And okay. so I had to design the hangers and all of that. My boss comes to me and says, hey, um, there was a collapse in 1981. Um, uh, you know, in Kansas City, Missouri, yep. um, you know, the, you know, high agency and what you're designing right now is kind of eerily similar to that structure. Nothing wrong with that structure as it is a concept, right. yeah. but the details, I mean, there was something wrong with the details. That's why it collapsed. Um, I want you to review that collapse. I want you to reflect on the lessons learned from that collapse and uh -huh. apply to the structure that you're designing. Okay. So I researched the collapse, one around 14 people died, uh, you know, more than 200 people injured. But then I, I asked myself, I, I looked at what caused the collapse. It was right. so simple. I so mean, what was it? What it, was the kind of the thing that precipitated the collapse? So um, what happened was that uh, the hangar rod was supposed to be just one hangar rod going all the way from uh, you know, the, 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 the uh, second floor all the way up to the roof. Okay. And one hangar, but it was supposed to be treaded. And the architect, I think, or the contractor at the last minute felt that building that would be very difficult because, you, uh, I mean, it was buildable because you have to have the nuts go all the way, you know, to each floor level that has been supported. Right. Uh, but then you are going to have this ugly threaded rod yeah. all the way up. Yep. And so the 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 contractor uh, called the engineer and said, "Can we change it into double rod? So we're going to instead of having uh, one rod going all the way, we're going to change it into double rods. This rod will hang, you know, carry the floor from below and hang it from this level, and then from here we'll carry both." Right. Problem was that nobody took a look at the change in loads. Yeah, the load doubles in the connection of this upper rod all of a sudden because the floor frame below is coming onto the floor here yep. and then this is picking up the floor frame below and the floor at this level picking it up at the same time so this hanger uh, connection had two times the load and that um, wasn't designed to hold it, anyway it wasn't designed for yeah there were other things that were wrong even the detail itself there was something wrong with it but it was something that was easy to catch. Yeah. Um, 
apparently nobody nobody either reviewed it uh, uh, you know they didn't catch it and you know 114 people died so that had an impact on me because i said to myself um not only does studying structural failures mm -hmm. you know help you you know find out yeah. what happens in other failures but it makes you learn lessons that you can apply to your own new designs yeah and so you know that's that's how i got interested and in i got intrigued by it and i said i don't really, you know see other failures you know what are some of the lessons that you know that have been learned over the years and i found out that it was you know many other failures right happened over the years well, and it's like one of those things, if you don't study the history, then it's you're doomed to repeat it, right? That's um, And it happens more and more frequently. And I know like from like code provisions and things like that, a lot of the things that we have in the code nowadays are brought on by different, um, you know, we've had different large scale fires or different collapses and things like that, yeah. um, that definitely make us take a, you know, much bigger look at things. That's correct, yes. Yeah. So, so that's how I got myself interested in it. And also, um, when I started, you know, uh, when I got to Rochester, um, I, I was able to connect with uh, an AE firm, a national AE firm. Okay. Uh, so I was consulting with them for about 10 years, you know, so I worked in Rochester for about eight full time. Mm -hmm. And I'm teaching, you know, full time and doing all the other things that we do as professors. And, and then I was able to consult with this uh, firm to do their uh, quality assurance, you know, so I yeah. review designs. And so uh, I was doing that uh, as well. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in 2006, 2007, I was approached by an investigative reporter uh, in, uh, in Buffalo, New York, uh, to look at some bridges that were falling apart. They were really falling apart. And even they had traffic uh, going, yeah. going on them. And, and so we were able to bring, you know, investigate that, and allows them and brought attention to the conditions of those bridges to the uh, Erie County Legislature. And so something was done about them. So, you know, that's how I got myself really <laughs> interested in that area of structural failure analysis. Now, you know, we try to prevent and minimize structural failures. Right. Uh, as you know, people that have come before me have said, uh, it's impossible because human error is really what causes, you know, structural failures. Right. Um, I mean, tough God is really wrong the way you just say something yeah. just happened out of nowhere. Yeah, um, out of the blue, right? The yeah. blue, yeah. So um, we try to minimize it. So that's been my uh, my my goal, even with my students to make sure that um, they leave the program with that awareness mm -hmm. of what causes structural failures and how can we prevent it in their own designs or at least minimize it right. in their own designs. And so a few years ago, um, you know, I, I uh, developed a course, in, you know, at Drexel here called Forensic Structural Engineering. So okay. is that. So I, I, I use the the techniques that I teach in that course, I've used that. I tell my students that I use that when SoftSide came along, yeah. uh, you know, in trying to figure out what I'm That's impressive. Well, and, and to be able to identify that as a need, right? To be able to then to identify, you know, if you s study the forensics of a collapse, hopefully we won't have it happen again in the future. And you shared a lot of key kind of experiences that were kind of turning points in, in your career, yeah. you know, from the Kansas City design to some of, some of those other designs. but. What other um, kind of key experiences throughout your course of your career really have kind of helped shape your um, kind of where you're at right now and, and the idea behind forensics and structural uh, analysis? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that my the experience I got when I, uh, you know, worked for that, you know, full time for that eight years and also the um, working with the uh, quality, you know, the, uh, you know, AE firm uh, really, uh, made me really interested in that area of preventing how to prevent mm -hmm. uh, collapses on, mm -hmm. and also how to analyze them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I once worked on a project, uh, you know, reviewed a project where they had a problem with, um, you know, with the concrete pour because oh. uh, when, as they were pouring the concrete, the concrete, you know, it was a, a composite construction, meaning you have concrete on steel with mm -hmm. stocks. 
And as they were pouring the concrete, the concrete, you know, the structure kept deflecting, kept deflecting, kept deflecting. And so the concrete supply ran out of concrete. And so the question was, why did they run out, you know, run out of concrete? Yeah. Well, because of a mistake that the designer had made in the software. The software called for, uh, you know, this, this software had a default. The default was that the beams would be shored during the concrete pour because yeah. the concrete and the beams don't act together in unison compositely until the concrete hardens. So yeah. the software had that, um, had that, uh, uh, you know, uh, default that you have to show the beams, mm -hmm. but during the construction, the beams were not shored. And so that's why it kept deflecting, kept deflecting, kept deflecting. And, um, you know, fortunately it did not collapse because the yeah. end result would have been a collapse and people were working on the need, you know, uh, contract, you know, uh, you know, the contractors, uh, employees yeah. were working on the need. So thankfully they figured that out. And so they were wondering what caused it. Well, it was because somebody failed to remove that default from the program, from the software that these beams are not going to be short. Therefore, you know, they would have had a bigger size beams rather than the smaller size beams that mm -hmm. they had. And so that was a near miss. You know, I study those too. I mean, I look at those too. So, you know, we don't want collapses and we try to prevent collapses as much as possible. But this one was a very fortunate one because, you know, they had to remove all the structure and rebuild. Um, right. Nobody was injured. Nobody died. Um, you know, but they, you know, they lost money uh, in terms of the materials that they yeah. had to uh, rebuild. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, the amount of weight that was probably on that pad as people were walking underneath it as those beams were continuing to deflect. Um, and I mean, I would think that that would cause some concern, right? Um, and yeah. eventually they were able to identify it, um, yeah. which is thankfully, right? Um, so that way that, because yeah. I'm curious what the weight was, you know, given what they were supposed to have put in versus what was the with the concrete pour and the, you know, as well, they were continuing to build. Yeah, I think that's what got them thinking, right? I mean, yeah. because we, we, you know, we call it a ponding load. So yeah. typically when you pour a structure, even when you have the right size beams and gutters, uh -huh. it's going to still deflect. Yeah. And so you, yep. have to, you have to bring the concrete to a flat level. And so you do add some additional concrete. Mm -hmm. And, and they, they, they made room for that, but it was just that, it was so much, and thankfully yeah. it stopped, right? Because yeah. if they had continued pouring concrete to try to flatten the floor, then that structure would have collapsed. Oh, yeah. 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 And, and so, um, you know, those are the types of, there are many near misses. Yeah. Um, in fact, there's, a, there's an organization in the U.S. now, I believe it's called Cross U.S., um, where they, um, you know, uh, where they are encouraging, it started from the U.K., they're encouraging people to report anonymously uh, collapses, you know, or failures, uh -huh. uh, you know, or near misses, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, and report it anonymously so that people can learn from that. Yeah. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, there, there are some reports there that I've, I've seen where people are reporting it anonymously so that others can learn and say, hey, you know, next time, you know, if you have, you know, software, make sure you check the default settings, <laughs> right? Right. I mean, that's what I learned from me. And that's what the, yeah. the person that did the orig original design of this building right. learned from it. Make sure you check the default. What does the default of the software say and what does it require? Yeah. Well, like you and I just talked before we started this episode, so, uh, you know, technology is great when it works and it worked, yeah. right? Um, however, it, there are a lot of inputs and as we start to, you know, go into the, the field of AI and we see, start seeing some of these things, I wonder if we'll start seeing maybe, uh, and, and, and I don't know if this is something that you guys uh, um, at Drexel or uh, academia, they, they start to take a look at is maybe some type of AI review of some of these structural calculations to see if there's something out there that might cause uh, somebody to, you know, pause a little bit uh, before they move forward and maybe take, take a look at some of those inputs. 
Yeah, I mean, right now we we do have, I mean, uh, review uh, systems in place. Okay. Right. I mean, if 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 uh, you design something or a structure, uh, a senior engineer can take a look at it and mm -hmm. just without doing even any calculations, just look at the numbers and say, based on what I've you know other projects that I've done in the past, these beams look too small. Yeah. Go double check it. Uh, so we do have those types of. Uh, reviews or peer reviews within right. companies right now, and maybe AI will make it better. But um, yeah. you know, I'm still a believer in you know, uh, you know, an engineer, yeah. a, a trained engineer taking a look yeah. at the building. Because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, if the AI makes a mistake, uh, the AI is not going to be jailed. Right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're they're going to be looking at you or I um, if that exactly. if something happens. Yep. Exactly. So uh, I think you still need a live engineer to go in there, yeah. do quality control, look at the drawings. I mean, th that's some of the things that I believe was missing uh, in the case of Southside. I mean, yeah. you know, some of the mistakes that we found were like, you know, was like, you know, this should have been found by someone. Well, yeah, and you, I mean, in, in watching, you know, some of the news reports, reading some of the news reports, watching some of the, the videos associated with it and, you know, and seeing some of the columns themselves and, you know, any anywhere from the columns to the details that were submitted yeah. for review, um, it, it, there was just kind of a totality of a lot of things. Like we talked about what you said about the Kansas City um, and that one failure in that one point that could have been an easy identifiable detail, yeah. um, but a lot of the things from surface side you know could have definitely been you know some of that stuff could sh should have been uh, caught and maybe easily mitigated um, yeah. to help reduce that that's correct i mean uh you know cover for example yeah uh, and you know waterproofing snooping of the of the uh pool deck slide yeah i mean things like that um there were just a ton of things there were a number of things that were just um not done right yeah yeah, and that's why I think, like you just mentioned earlier, you know, making sure to have like engineer there to be able to review things, and that's why yeah. I always tell people having having code officials and engineers work together. That's when really things work well. I mean, for myself and I'm sure my building official folks uh, and and partners and friends, um, you know, we want the building to go just as much as the engineer yeah. and the d developer and designer, but also too. And I'm sure, as you can probably relate to this, we want to make sure that it's safe. We want to make sure that nobody's going to get injured. We want to make sure there's no collapse. You know, for me, there's not going to be a fire. If there is some type yeah. of emergency, people can get out, all those types of things. And so yeah. it, it's all good. You know, I think, uh, you know, it's one of those things when we can all work together in a partnership. Uh, I think that that's, that's right. a lot of what needs to, what we need to look at. Now we talk. You mentioned the forensic class uh, that you yeah. uh, and how long has that forensic class been offered at Drexel? Uh since two thousand and fifteen. Okay, uh, so quite a while. Yeah, quite a while. Yes, yes. So now, when you started that class, what's the typical analytical approach that that you utilize when reviewing these types of structural collapses? And I know for me as a fire investigator, I uh, utilize you know we utilize NFPA nine twenty one. It has, and it recommends the scientific method. So we, we we collect our data, we test our hypothesis, and then we select that final hypothesis. Now, granted, I simplified the whole process in yeah. you know three three cent or three you know bullet points, but um, but what is that failure or, or kind of that uh, analysis approach that you go through when looking at these structural failures? We we you know we basically use the scientific method uh, okay. as well. We you know I tell you know the students I go when you when there's a failure, uh, first of all you approach it with an open mind. I mean mm -hmm. you you want to do you know really at this point, uh, you know real divergent thinking. Yeah. You know what are, what are the possible failure modes or mechanisms yep. uh, that could be attributed uh, to this structure now. For some structures, we know what the predominant failure mode is, right? For example, if I see a, a slab that is sitting directly on a column, mm -hmm. I'm thinking punch and shear. Yep. That's what I'm thinking as a structural engineer. Okay, I need to check punch and shear. But I also need to check, you know, if, if it collapsed, I mean, did the car, you know, if it's a parking garage, the car hit the column. Right. Um, and was, there, was there an explosion? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I mean, or, or the column itself over time, uh, you know, has the rebar within the column, or if it's a steel column, has the steel column corroded right. uh, because maybe there was seawater infiltration. So I need to check all the various possible failure modes, okay. you know, and then again, without speculating, uh, based on the evidence, uh, you know, and analysis, then you can rule out or rule in, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, the hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And then you might come up with maybe two, right. you know, hypotheses that are kind of close and you're not yep. able to pick which one. Yep. And that's fine. And that's fine because sometimes uh, you are not able to identify exactly what's the trigger. Sometimes right. you're able to do it. Yeah. And in the case of Southside, for example, when I did my analysis, which I presented in so many venues already, mm-hmm. you know, I looked at the pool deck. I knew that I was suspect. Uh, you know, uh, then I looked at where the pool deck itself connects to the tower because there's a right. step beam there. Those mm-hmm. beams too were suspect. So I, my my sense was that the pool deck went first, but. Those beings too were suspect and they could have gone as well because, you know, the video from across the street showed that collapse haven't taken place. So those beings might have gone first before the pool deck. But I mean, I was not dogmatic about it. I just basically said the pool deck is bad. Those beings themselves are bad as well. And either of them or both of them go, the structure goes. Right. You know, and so you have all these hypotheses and in fact, I have so many hypotheses listed. I mean, I, I ordered them when I presented to, yep. to you know, my keynote at the Structural Engineers Association of California. And also I presented to NIST uh, mm-hmm. when they had my keynote, uh, they, they, they heard about my keynote, uh, they asked me to present to them. So I had all these hypotheses listed, you know, starting from one that I believe is, you know, yep. Top-notch ones, yep. the ones that I couldn't determine, but their hypothesis, I couldn't determine whether there was an explosion because I don't have the debris, I don't have right. you know, those are limitations that I yep. listed in my report, and presented that to them, and then analyzed based on the evidence and based on you know, uh, you know, what we know, the material strengths. Yep. Which again, I had to assume as an observer from afar, and right. to assume based on the design strength. NIST, for example, can do a test on a yep. specimen to find out what the design strength was. So that's what I teach my students. And then yeah. and for me, other things that we consider as well for a structure is that what about the original design? Was mm-hmm. this structure originally designed? Was it okay? Right. You know, what about, you know, were there design errors? Were there um, um, construction errors? What about maintenance? Was there um, a lack of maintenance, you know, deflect maintenance that could have, you know, caused deterioration and lack of strength or reduction in strength mm-hmm. of the structure? And then, like I said, you know, you, you ask, you know, also were there extreme loading, you know, like explosions yeah. or uh, did they carry them into a column? So all of that uh, you consider and then you do the analysis, you know, and if, if, if you, you know, like NIST, if you were NIST, you will also do some experiments, yeah. uh, maybe break some concrete to find out what the strengths are uh, and uh, do some testing um, and then, you know, write your report and come to a conclusion. Yeah. So it sounds like a very similar approach to what I take as a fire investigator in the sense that, um, you know, definitely you, know, you develop those hypotheses and then you try to, you know, prioritize and you try to test them in yeah. any manner that you have. I mean, we do a lot of test burns just to see how fuels react. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, uh, you know, to me, it's, you know, like you were mentioning videos and things like that. Um, it's the totality of evidence, right? You know, as we as we do fire investigations, we always talk about, you know, we're we're getting witness statements, we're analyzing patterns, we're yes. looking at the fuels, we're looking at, you know, the the science behind it, and then we, you know, that helps kind of help us develop it. Wanting to go in with or needing to go in with an open mind because we yes. don't want to have that bias ahead of time, right? Like, yeah, like, well, hey, I just had one of these the other day, and this is what <laughs> happened. And you know, yes. it, 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 and you'd be foolish to not have an open mind and not rule out some of these other, you know, other things that could be easily ruled out, um, yeah. or ruled in as well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yes, yes. But now you mentioned 
as part of that, you look at, um, you, you know, the, the original design. And a yes. lot of times original design is uh, reviewed by code officials, um, but also to the annual inspections and those types of things that we go through every year um, on many facilities, not all facilities. We, you know, we try to get into as many as we yeah. can. Um, and so there could be some design and construction errors. Um, but what's your view on the importance of kind of code enforcement, um, plan review, and those types of things? We talked earlier about it being kind of a collaborative effort, but what's your view uh, in regards to that? So my my sense uh, is that uh, when a building has been uh, designed or, you know, just before it's built, uh, obviously it goes for plan review. Uh -huh. There are some jurisdictions that I feel um, maybe small, too yeah. small to handle some projects. Um, I have, you know, the question I had with Softside was, why didn't someone either at the plan review stage or, you know, catch some of the glaring errors, yeah. you know? For example, I mean, this is like ocean front. Mm -hmm. And the cover to the concrete river is three quarters of an inch. That shouldn't be. I mean, that should be like a red flag right there. Yeah. That, I mean, that's way too small. I mean, that's what you'll use in philadelphia i mean like so now we are in a coastal zone and we're using three quarters of an inch that should be flat so there were so errors like that so i believe that plan review is really crucial i mean it mm -hmm. is crucial uh, but not every jurisdiction has the ability capacity, yeah the ability to review i mean a building like Southside, 12-story building so in a town like Southside. i don't know if they had a structural engineer on you you know uh, mm -hmm. You know, as an employee, uh, employee, yeah. yep. and so in that case, I believe ICC also has code reviews that they do. They do, yep. yeah. I mean, this should be farmed out. I mean, this should be contracted out either to, yep. you know, folks like ICC or to a private structural engineering firm to yep. be a third party to come out and do these third party reviews. I yep. believe if when that is done. That will help prevent some of these issues, uh, you know, that we found in Southside. Yeah, and that's one of those things that, you know, as a code official, um, I, you know, we do, you know, definitely use third parties to help assist us. And um, I am not an engineer, um, and nor will I claim to be, but I, I do have some level of experience, but I know what my limitations are. And the code identifies that um, in the sense that it, it, you know, talks about that, you, you know, seek technical opinions and, yeah. and research reports and those types of things. Um, you know, when you receive those types of designs, um, because I would say building uh, and structures are not getting any simpler um, in the sense that uh, you're getting a lot more automation, right? Mm -hmm. We want to try to be able to build these buildings to be resilient, not only yeah. just the structural collapse, but also we talk about, you know, Surfside, the saltwater intrusion and those yeah. types of things, uh, Mother Nature and, and trying to make sure that, you know, it, it's going to be here for, you know, in the next 40, 50, yeah. 60 years. So yeah. what do we do? Uh, but, you know, identifying those limitations and then and finding people you can you know, that can help assist you. And and yeah. I think that, you know, it, it, like you mentioned, some of some you know, jurisdictions that may not have, um, you know, structural engineers on board, yeah. maybe seek and find um, maybe third parties that can help assist. Um, I know that we have um, and, and it, it typically is one of those things that, as you mentioned, ICC does have. Uh, yeah. Not to put a plug in for it, but they yeah, do yeah. have some plan review uh, yeah. uh, capabilities. So, yes. but now um, one of the things with Surfside, they had the 40 year certification, right? Yeah. And we, we talk about the 40 year certification. And now um, there's, yeah, and I know you've talked about maybe hopefully reducing that recertification period maybe to 10 to 15 years. Yeah. Um, you know, can you explain, you know, really, you know, how often should these recertification periods be for some of these larger structures um, and, and verify that the structural integrity is still intact? So, when I look at a building, uh, you know, I look at, okay, what is the design life? What do we typically, you know, estimate the design life to be? Uh -huh. uh, you know, it's about 50 years. Okay. Uh, you know, some bridges, you know, maybe 75 years. So, you know, I look at the, uh, the buildings, you know, that's the design life, 50 years old. 
Uh, first off, I don't want the, the first time that the building goes to see it, its doctor uh, <laughs> is when it's 40 years old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense, right? You don't want to, you know, we've only almost hit the whole lifespan, right? And now yeah. we're going to, like, yeah. I like I like the idea that yeah. the, fi the first checkup is not until it's almost like it, in its, uh, you know, elderly stage, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah. you know, 80% of his design life. And so, you know, um, and then I, I compare it to things like parking garages. Mm -hmm. In New York State, they have parking garages inspected every three years. Okay. Um, in New York City, they have it inspected, I believe, every six years. Okay. So I look at it again, and then bridges typically are inspected every two years or, or less. Um, again, just because they're exposed to the elements. So I look at buildings in coastal regions, mm -hmm. you know, with their exposure, especially when you have a building like, um, you know, soft side with a pool deck, and, you know, the water table is hung. And so mm -hmm. you might have infiltration and all of that. So I look at that and I say, well, I mean, just looking at it, comparing it to these other structures that are exposed, I think the 10 to 15 years makes sense mm -hmm. as the first time that the, the building is going to see its doctor. Right. right? Yeah. Just, I mean, I'm just looking at it again from a cost point, you know, trying to, you know, uh, balance you know, cost versus safety. Right. Um, it just makes sense to me that, you know, maximum 15 years. And in fact, you should be inspecting the building more frequently than that. Yeah. More frequently than that. But I'm talking about the 15 years where you do like, like um, a milestone real. Like you bring a structural engineer in to take a look yeah. at it and looking at the, you know, the structure itself, the integrity of that building. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Because I think you will prevent a lot of, uh, you know, uh, a, a lot of failures um, mm -hmm. in the future if you do that. I mean, you, you think about soft side and also you reduce the cost. You minimize the cost. Soft yeah. side started out, okay, uh, they didn't do anything. And when they were trying to start doing something in 2018, it was going to cost them $9 million. Nothing was done. Yeah. It was now 15 million. I mean, the cost keeps going up. Right. And now, what did they end up with? It collapsed and, and 98 people died. So um, I, I believe that um, the sooner we do it, the better. Um, I mean, if you don't find anything, if the structure is fine. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's a win win, I think. Yeah. But when you wait till too long, too long, then it's going to cost you way too much to fix that structure. In fact, there's a, there's a rule of deferred maintenance that if it costs you $100 today and you don't fix that particular component uh -huh. on the next level of failure, that the cost is probably going to be squared. Oh, okay. So yeah. It's called the Gingling rule. I mean, you know, you don't want that. The cost is no. going to be squared. And yeah. when they talk about cost, they are talking about not just the cost of fixing the component, but maybe the cost of if you have a collapse, you know, the liability that you're going to have. Yeah, absolutely. It, well, and like you mentioned, the financial aspects of it, and and it's one of those things that uh, you know, as code officials, uh, you know, I've always heard the term making sure to try to be as reasonable as we can. Yes. Um, and you know, we try to do the best that we can, but um, you know, obviously addressing the financial constraints and building maintenance is one it, it is a big issue. And like yeah. you said, if if we continue to defer it, like I tell my wife, I said, you know, <laughs> things around the house, we got we better fix it now because it's going to yeah. be a lot more expensive if we don't do it later. Yeah. Um, and you know, and it typically truly is, unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, but it's one of those things that, you know, as code officials, yeah, we do have those things happen. Now you, you hit on one of those things, checking that building more frequently. Is there something, you know, as we, I'm, I would imagine that there's going to be some property management folks that listen to our conversation. Are there things that property management uh, individuals uh, that, that are in that role can go out and, you know, things that they should be looking for, um, you know, problem areas that they should, I mean, we talked about columns, making sure that the columns 
systems are are not deteriorating, but are there other things that they should look at? I mean, I, I think about seeing cracks in walls and things yeah. like that, um, but when do we find it to be a hazard, right? Um, and when should we report it and, and, and those types of things? So what can, can you know, folks like that do as they do maybe a, an owner's inspection or a property maintenance inspection? Yeah, I mean, I've always um, struggled with uh, a non-engineer, mm -hmm. non-structural engineer doing an inspection because, you know, if they see a crack, uh, it might be a benign crack. It might just yeah. be a, a shrinkage crack, right? Yep. But that shrinkage crack, uh, you know, will uh, be the source of salt water infiltrating the, the the structure and then corroding the river and then leads to something worse. Mm -hmm. So um, I believe that uh, the inspection should be done by a registered design professional, uh, whether it's the periodic inspection or whether mm -hmm. it's the milestone inspection, uh, who can determine whether a crack, you know, for example, if it's a shear crack, an angular crack in a beam, that's something that will raise an eyebrow. Yeah. If it's uh, you know, if it's just a you know, you know, a vertical crack and the midspan of a beam, uh, that's a flexural crack. You know, I might you know be worried about it, but I could watch it. But if I start seeing diagonal crack at the end of the beam, it's a shear crack, and I'm worried about it because when shear mm -hmm. failure happens, it happens suddenly. It doesn't give you much warning than you know, what a, a flexural failure will give you. Right. So I, I'm a believer that, you know, the inspection, whether it's periodic mm -hmm. or the milestone inspection should be done by a structural engineer or, or a licensed design professional. I think you can bring somebody in, I mean, for just the periodic inspection, you know, visual inspection, they go out and just make sure that you don't have corroded steel Right. You, you know, I mean, they can check that. Yeah. Sure your connections that you don't have hidden, hidden defects. That's the other thing. Yeah. Right? If yeah. you have hidden defects that you don't know about, that could lead to collapse. Yeah. Now, we talk about financial constraints um, and deferred maintenance and... Yeah. And, you know, and I, I, I don't think in, you know, the things that I've read and the things that I've, I've watched in regards to Surfside, um, there was never anything that said that it was an imminent collapse. They, like they said, hey, these are $9 million. It's going to, and I think it, it, it always it increased to 16 as they were looking at trying to do the, def, uh, the maintenance of or take care of the uh, deficiencies identified in the engineer's report. But, you know, we talk about imminent collapse and we talk about trying to be reasonable, but, you, you know, and I don't want to say like, and yeah, I'm, I kind of feel like I'm painting you into a corner. Like, what are those things that have to be done um, as we start to take a look at these things? Um, because um, since nobody said that, you know, hey, if you don't do these things within 30 days, this is going to, you're going to see a, a structural collapse. Um, but what are some maybe red flags um, that you would recommend, um, you know, because like myself, I, I, I may not get this report. It might go to the building department. But yeah. what are some of those uh, um, red flags that we should look for as we take a look at these reports? Yeah, I, I think that um, with Southside, they should have they should have uh, red flagged that. Uh, mm -hmm. that this was an imminent danger of collapse. I mean, all they needed to do was just check the pool deck, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, for punching shit. And, and then uh, look at the fact that there was deterioration going on as a result of the um, pool deck, the ponding of, of salt water on the pool deck. And, and so at the very least, that pool deck should have been shot up. At, mm. the, at the very least. So when they when they notice, for example, that the planters uh, in early June, sometime in June, uh, the planters were just cracking. You know, the planters are not structure, but they are supported yeah. by the structure. So the planters were cracking. So uh, that should have been, again, another red flag. Yeah. Uh, this planters cracking. Go downstairs, check the columns that are supporting those planters, and and, and you know, find out, you know, what's going on. Because you can't, sometimes you can't see the cracks because the cracks may be above the slab, but yeah. the slab itself is covered up with pavers. 
mm. with pavers. So you may not see that. So right. that is a warning sign. At least they should have gone down and looked and see whether you know there was deflection taking place, whether there was deter and there was deterioration. They they, they noted that um, in one of the columns where water was just pouring down. In fact, I think the man we have called that column, you know, said somebody called that column a waterfall. Um, you know, they should have oh. at least shot on yeah. that, you know, parking garage. Yeah. You know, and then decide whether to evacuate the building. Um, so I will say that in terms of warning signs, the numbers will show it. That is, mm-hmm. you you do the analysis, you check for punching punching share capacity, and that will give you, you know, an idea that something is wrong. I mean, when I checked it, uh, there were things that I found, uh, columns that were kind of like on the edge, really on the mm-hmm. edge, even within the tower, columns yeah. that were on the edge. So things like that. Um, and then a, a pool deck slab for which the punching was, you know, was inadequate. Punching share capacity was inadequate. Right. And then I, I already spoke about the the stepped beams uh, yep. that, you know, connect the pool deck uh, to the uh, tower structure. So... You know, the numbers should show where the concerns are. And if they had checked those, uh, to, to this date, I don't believe that I've seen any calculations where they actually checked the punching share capacity of the pool deck. Hmm. So they never actually did that in that final analysis to be able to see if that um, you know, if there was a failure or not necessarily maybe the calculations themselves, they didn't check those. I didn't see any calculations for, you know, anything that happened between that 2018 or even from the, you know, from the very beginning yeah. up to 2021 when people started to to take a look at uh, the, you know, the structure as a whole. Yeah. Uh, there were no pool deck calculations for shear, punching shear that I have seen. Wow. And it sounds like it further deteriorated. Um, uh, you know, as time was going on, you mentioned the planners, they started to, you know, crack. And and, uh, and that was in early June uh, as those started to crack. I mean, June, yeah, before yeah. the collapse, yes. And yeah. and they had called the engineer in and they, did, they took those pictures of the planters with the cracks. That, again, was, you know, I believe the structure crying out through yeah. the planters that, hey, show me, show me or evacuate this building. I mean... If they had done that at that time and then step back and take an overall look at the building, perhaps mm-hmm. the 98 people would have still been here with us. Yeah. As we talk about, you know, the, the idea, you know, identifying those issues and being able to make those corrective actions and, and how much is it going to take? And, you know, we talk about like, hey, if it's 9 million, it's 16 million and identifying, you know, we, we talked a little bit about the red flags. But, you know, one of the things kind of shifting directions a little bit, yeah. modern structural systems have, have definitely improved. Um, I, I would say code enforcement and design provisions have improved significantly, yeah. you know, over the decades and the, and the many years that codes and standards have been in, put in place. Um, and, and so, you know, as we take a look at that, um, you know, that's one of the great things. And hopefully over time, you know, that will help reduce or um, make the impact minimal towards, you know, making some of these changes, right? Like yeah. you said, shoring up those columns, like how much would, would it be to be able to shore up a column, you know, and being able to pick those red flags and be able to, to do those things. And it, it, you know, like I said earlier, being reasonable and trying to find, um, you know, solutions because they always push back on, on the code official when yeah. we say you've got to, to do these things. Um, and then they're, they're, you know, they're like, well, we're, we're trying to do the best we can. We got to, you know, as we talk about deferred maintenance, how do you balance that with making sure that they, they continue to do that? But what are some modern building systems or modern things that we've learned from that we could potentially implement um, to help maybe offset um, some of these, you know, potential, potential structural failures that we're starting to see more of? Yeah. So back to soft side, um, there were some things that were not uh, used in soft side that are now in the code that mm. were not used, not because the engineers at the time uh, were negligent on that on that front. Uh, it was just that that was not in the code. We call it integrity reinforcing. Mm-hmm. Integrity reinforcement means you have 
that goes along the column lines in both directions. And, and so the idea of that is that when you have punch and shear failure, when the slab drops, when you have rebound, that rebound is going to keep the slab hanging. Yeah. Then you have that because the building was built in 1981. Integrity reinforcement came into the SCI code, the American Concrete Institute code in 1989. Okay. So, so we have that now that that helps mitigate function mm -hmm. share failure so you don't have the slab pancaking on top of one another. Um, some, uh, you know, modern, uh, you know, structural systems that we use to increase uh, strength, for example, of, of structures uh, is, you know, they're called fiber reinforced plastics. Mm. Um, so you can wrap that around columns that have been weakened, you know, and, and, Pour concrete around it, okay. to, you know, to sort of strengthen uh, the concrete columns uh, and also to widen the concrete columns because punching shear has to do with the size of the column. Mm. If you if you make the column bigger, you increase the punching shear strength of the slab. Okay. So that has been done, um, you know, over the years. And in, in fact, I read a paper recently where um, they, uh, you know, there were some columns, again in Florida, uh, where the concrete strength was like 1,500 PSI, okay. very low, compared to maybe 4,000 that may have been the original design strength. They don't state what the original design strength is, but mm -hmm. they stated that the, um, excuse me. <laughs> no worries. They stated that the, Current design strength was 1500 PSI. Okay. We had to wrap this FLP, uh, you know, fiber reinforced plastics around the column to increase its strength. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those are the types of modern materials that, that we have available that we can use, not only for columns, but for beams and girders as well. So it's one of those things that, you know, it sounds like it's more of a lighter weight material that we can definitely incorporate into, you know, retroactively incorporate yes. into some of these buildings. Because I, I don't think you're going to break that column down and now add a bunch of rebar um, you know, trying to address that challenge, right? <laughs> That's correct. That's yeah. correct. We're retrofitting the column. We're trying to, uh, you know, make the column stronger or at least maybe up to its original strength. Yeah. But no, we're not going to break it down. Otherwise, I mean, that's demolishing the whole structure as well. You know, I just bringing the whole thing down and rebuilding. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's good to see that, you know, and I think over time, you know, we'll start to see some more, you know, modern materials that will make it a little bit, um, you know, increase the flexibility uh, to be able to build off of uh, and be able to address some of these limitations that we've seen in these structures uh, over time. I, I, you know, I I definitely see it in fire protection systems all the time, yeah. um, you know, just, just different things that they can do. So uh, you, you mentioned just a minute ago about reading papers and, and I'm sure, you know, in academia, you try to stay up to date as much as you can. But, you know, as I look at it, and you mentioned being, giving the keynote uh, address uh, at, for the California um, Structural Engineers Group, um, then also doing a, a presentation at NIST. Um, but, you know, what are, you know, as I look back and think about the kind of the, um, you know, kind of the who listens to this podcast, yes. uh, our code officials and maybe engineers and um, where can they stay more up to date on like the work that you're doing and yeah. the different things that we talk about, uh, you know, we've talked about today about structural failure analysis and, you know, um, retroactive uh, and modern building materials. Yeah, I, I think uh, the, the best resource that I uh, use uh, that in my, from my point of view is Structure Magazine. Okay. Uh, Structure Magazine uh, is at structuremagmag.org. Uh, and, um, you know, they're practical, uh, but, you know, they also talk about theory. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, I, I use that a lot. I, you know, and they talk about structures that have been built, structures that are having issues, how they were fixed, things like that. So Structure Magazine is, is one. Uh, but the ASC, American Society of Civil Engineers, also has uh, a library 
um, of of webinars uh, that oh. folks can listen to. And uh, in uh, the American Concrete Institute Structural Journal, it's a little bit more on the theoretical side. Okay. On the theoretical side, but it's also quite useful to sort of get an idea of what's going on. And uh -huh. you have the American Institute for Steel Construction. They have the engineering journal. They're quite practical as well and theoretical at the same time. But, you know, they come up with, you know, relevant papers from time to time. Um, I think that's quarterly, the AISC um, engineering journal. And then you have uh, Woodworks, uh, uh -huh. Wood. Um, you know, Woodworks uh, website. Yep. Uh, it's, very, uh, it's a very useful website for uh, wood, you know, buildings. So yeah, that's one that I use. And we talked to uh, in the previous episode. We talked to Ray O'Brocky with the American Wood Council uh, on construction, yeah. fire safety, uh, and so. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that if you get involved in code development, a lot of times you you start to you know identify those folks and those um, uh, maybe those other organizations that are definitely <laughs> deeply involved uh, uh, in code development and where do they get their you know. I remember when I went to my first code hearing, uh, it was on re the residential code, and there was probably a two-hour discussion just on deck rails alone. Mm. And uh, I thought I never, I did not necessarily ever think that deck rails would be that hot of a topic, but it is. Uh, <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. And yeah. so it, 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 you know, gives you definitely a different perspective on, um, and, yes. and I didn't know there was a deck rail association of America, but there yeah. is. Um, and so it's just one of those things. You just kind of see those things yeah. and, and you realize that, um, there is a lot that we don't know. Yes. Um, and yes. so to be able to stay up to date is, is vitally important. It is. Uh, and that's, you know, to be honest with you, that's why I like these podcasts because I learn a lot. Uh, I've learned, I always learn a lot from talking to different people that are definitely much smarter than I am. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah I tell my students, I mean, I, when I tell my students that, um, I still learn that, yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know it all yet. You know, that I, you know, I'm learning every day. And yeah. Yeah, they're, they're going to continue learning. And I tell them, we call it lifelong learning, you know, yeah. that's why it's lifelong, you know? So yes, we have to continue learning. Yeah. I, you know, when I first, I, I was kind of naive when I first began my career, I always thought that I was going to hit that point where I was just going to be so knowledgeable that I was going to know everything. And, uh, I, uh, I am almost 20 years or 25 years into this profession and, uh, I learn something new almost every day. Yes. Um, it's, it, it's just amazing to, you know, the different things and the technology and, and all yep. of that that has evolved over the course of course of time, you, you know, it, before we end this episode, let's yeah. look to the future a little bit. Um, and as we talk about, you know, one of the things that has been a big topic of conversation is climate change and how that impacts the kind of the structural integrity, uh, you know, as we move forward. But what are some challenges and trends and uh, that, you know, especially in building safety that, you know, our listeners should be aware of? So, um, you know, right now we do inspections, for example, uh, visually, right? We go to site yeah. and, you know, uh, and we do inspections. Uh, if you look at cars and, and, you know, airplanes, you know, they are all instrumented uh, with mm -hmm. sensors. And, yeah. and so uh, there's been that thrust in that direction as far as structures are concerned that why can't we have sensors yeah. in buildings? Yeah. Uh, I mean, of course, a building is a large uh, you know, uh, a large structure. I mean, uh -huh. behemoth, right? I mean, like, right. you know, w where do you put the sensors and 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 you know? So you need a structural engineer to uh, to you know uh, tell where strategically those sensors will be placed. Right. But there's been a, a ton of work going on, a ton of work uh, going on right now in structural health monitoring, where okay. they're using. Embedded sensors or sensors that are attached to a structure, and trying to figure out if we can have that sensor calibrated in such a way that it will give us a warning when a certain threshold, mm -hmm. let's say, of displacement or you know displacement in a structure, deflection of a structure. If it's exceeded, it sends a warning. Um, you know, um, for example, takes offside. If, if for example, we there was there, there were sensors that when a beam goes down, 
right. uh, or before the beam goes down, even just, you know, the cracking that's taking place, there's an alarm that goes off. So, yeah. you know, there's work in that area that is ongoing as we speak. So that's okay. the area that I see, um, you know, is taking hold right now and will become even more uh, predominant uh, in the future. Another one that I've seen uh, recently is drone assisted uh, inspections. So, oh, yeah. you know, depending on the height of the structure or mm-hmm. how dangerous it is, uh, you can use drones uh, to do the inspections rather than, uh, you know, a human being trying to, to climb on a scaffold or something right. like that. So, yeah. th- that's some of that area that I've seen. And coming down the pike, um, before now, only Florida, um, you know, Miami Dade had the period, you know, the uh, recertification. But mm-hmm. I think that in the future, more and more jurisdictions yeah. are going to have, um, you know, periodic inspections and milestone inspections. Yeah, you got to start doing the, you got to have those inspections to be able to at least identify where your failures are. Yeah. Um, I'm fascinated by the aspect of, you know, the sensors and, and the technology that could be coming, uh, you know, I, I would say in the not too distant future, it feels, yeah. it feels like technology is moving at such a rapid pace right now. It's just, it's, it's crazy to see some of the things that we've seen um, just in the last, you know, six months to the last year. Uh, and you know, as you were talking about some of those sensors, I think about like the development of different fire alarm uh, components. Yeah. Um, and how do you, you know, how do you incorporate that into the fire alarm? So the fire alarm goes off if there's an immediate danger, um, all of those types of things. Right. Um, it's just, uh, it, I, I'm kind of interested to see how that all, uh, you know, and what, what ultimately ends up getting required, uh, in the code. Exactly. And, and, and there are challenges. I mean, who, yeah. where is the data stored? Uh, yeah. Where is the data stored? Who manages the data? Yep. Uh, do you, will you have a resident uh, or a structural engineer that you will have on a retainer uh, yeah. that's going to be reviewing this data? I mean, you know, I'm talking about the owners now because yep. uh, the owners are not necessarily structural engineers. So where is the data stored? Who analyzes the data? Right. You know, so there are there are still some challenges, but there are companies that are marketing these sensors as we speak. Uh, These types of sensors as we speak. So um, it's here. You know, it's just the logistics of getting into the building. Like you said, what will be required? Yeah. Uh, You know, what will the code require in the future? Will the code require that you're building a new building? You need to, uh, you know, uh, have monitoring. Right. Yeah. And, you know, like we talked about earlier, being reasonable, obviously there's always a cost impact. Right. Um, And that cost impact is one of those things that uh, I see a lot of, uh, you know, concerns when, you know, new things are brought into the code um, as we talk about cost and making sure that we can, you know, make sure make things continue to be affordable. Uh, and, you know, want to definitely, I mean, we could do a lot of different things and make a lot of different changes, but we want to continue to make things affordable. Um, and how do we do, how do we balance that? And it, it, it is a challenge. Uh, I've, I've seen it a lot. So, yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, with condos, for example, um, yeah. you know, uh, deferred maintenance, why do they defer the maintenance? Well, because, you know, I mean, you know, frankly, who wants to pay, uh, yeah. if they can avoid it, but then the consequences of not of not paying the assessment or not assessing, uh, you know, down the road is, is very, can be catastrophic. Um, you know, the condo associations, uh, at least in the U.S., as far as I know, don't have a mandate to have reserve fund studies. Uh, you know, I know that in Ontario, Canada, for example, they do reserve fund studies, I believe, every three years. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so, you know, they are on top of what it's going to cost to repair and replace, you know, they talk about the useful life left, uh-huh. you know, let's say for your roof, uh, you know, for all the components of your structure, and you calculate all of that. And so that at the end, when that thing really breaks or comes to a time to replace it, right, about 85 to 90% of the amount of money that you need yeah. uh, to, to fix it, because if you have nothing at all, 
like Southside, I mean, they had several hundred thousand or something like that, less than a million in the account, and they needed nine million in 2018, and 20, you know, 15 or so million in 2021. I mean, right. they, there was no way they were going to do that. And yeah. so they had to assess everyone. Yeah. You know, and, and the assessment was huge. I want to say, wasn't it a hundred thousand uh, dollars per? Yeah, it was yeah. huge. Yeah. So how do people afford that? And then still afford their mortgage and then still afford the uh, HOA fees, you know, the, yeah. the, the fees that they pay every month. Yeah. Yeah. And it's one of those things that, you know, we talk, you know, trying to find that balance and, and that's a challenge. Yeah. And if we let it, if we defer it for so long. And so kind of, as we talked earlier, being able to reduce that cycle um, to make it more manageable yes. is uh, definitely going to be one of those things. And hopefully with some of these emerging trends, we'll be able to identify, um, you know, so, some of these red flags as we talked about them earlier um, before they become, you know, critical red flags um, yeah. and that lead to structural collapse. Well, yeah. Dr. Aguirre, I, I really appreciate you, you know, joining us for this episode of, uh, for, of the podcast. I think it very informational. I think that there's a lot of people that are going to take away um, some different things, you know, either code officials or structural engineers or anybody that's interested in the building safety profession. I'm sure you deal with that a lot uh, in, at the university level, um, whether or not they're going to be, uh, you know, engineers or they're going to get in, involved in the public sector. Um, we're always looking for people in the public sector. So, um, you know, not to not not to try to maybe help sway some of those folks that might be, uh, you know, your students, but we're always looking for uh, good people to, to kind of yes. like we're yeah we're 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 definitely a uh, aging population and uh, you know we're having troubles filling some of those yes. critical positions uh, within uh, what we do on this on this side of things. So yes, um, is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners before we wrap up the episode? Uh, one other thing with again with condos is that um, they they usually have an attorney. Uh, you know, uh, on the board or at least advising the board, I think we should have a, a, a registered design professional as well, maybe on a retainer mm. and in the board because the board may have no experience at all to know, yeah. you know, what should we look for in a structure and, and you know, right. I, I think we should have, you know, maybe a, a registered design, you know, professional uh, as, as a member of the board, maybe as a consultant. Yeah. Uh, on the board. That's one of the recommendations that I will, uh, I will proffer. Yeah. So have a, you know, find those subject matter experts uh, yes. that can definitely help you through this yes. process uh, yes. as much as you possibly can. And, yes. and that recertification period, if we can find ways that, um, you know, we, we don't, as we talked about earlier, you don't go to 80% of the lifespan of the building before you yes. actually have that checkup. And that might be one of the things as we talked about just a little bit ago, that we see that to, you know, move forward in the sense that, um, you know, that, that aspect of uh, having, um, you know, being able to identify those problems early on um, are definitely going to help reduce that cost. And hopefully that will help, you know, mitigate any future disasters should we see them. So uh, yeah. it, where can people find more out about you and your work, uh, especially at Drexel University? Yeah, they go to drexel.edu uh, and they go to my department, Department of Civil Architectural and Environmental Engineering. Uh, they will find me there. All right. And I've been there. There's a wealth of content, uh, you know, different things that uh, he's been you've been part of. Um, yeah. Like I talked about earlier, the Smithsonian, um, the, uh, the video the or the episode that was like yeah. 45 minutes just on Surfside yeah. alone. Highly recommend it, um, you know, and some different things that uh, and different videos that are out there. It's one of those things that uh, you will learn a lot. Um, yes. And uh, I've definitely learned a lot myself uh, throughout the course of one preparation, but also then talking to you. So yes. <laughs> well, again, I really appreciate it. Uh, is there anything else before we wrap up the episode that you want to share? Uh, that that would be it. Uh, you know, it's been a, a pleasure joining uh, you and uh, on this uh, episode. Yeah, fantastic. Well, um, hopefully everybody learned a lot. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll have another episode soon. Thanks, yeah. guys. Okay, bye-bye.